This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast where each week we look at what's in the magazine with the writers behind the pieces. I'm Lara Prendergast, The Spectator's executive editor, and today we'll be looking at the radical rule of Elizabeth II, the shaky ground under the Prime Minister, and what's happened to Chinese cinema. First up, Will and I are joined by Robert Hardman and Angela Levin, two of the UK's royal specialists, to explore the character of the Queen and what impact she's had on the institution of the monarchy. Robert, I think the popular image of the Queen is perhaps someone who is a constant. So there's this idea that the world uh, has changed so much in 70 years, but the Queen has not changed. But actually, in your piece, you paint a slightly different picture. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about how you, you, you see her? Yes, well, thank you. I mean, I, uh, the point I make is, uh, as you say, I mean, the Queen herself, the character, the, the Elizabeth Windsor hasn't, hasn't changed. She's still that same dutiful conscientious uh, young princess um, determined to emulate her father and and 70 years on she is but the institution that she uh, leads has changed immeasurably over the years and that has been down to her she can see that institutions that are going to survive have to evolve Prince Philip once said to me that you know that all the monarchies that that have, that have gone over the years they haven't been killed by republicanism they've been taken down by the people who love them most who sort of as it were cast them in aspic and won't let them alter one bit and the queen has always got that she's seen the need for change it's got to be done judiciously i think at times probably they were a bit behind the curve i mean you look at the monarchy in the 60s it really was starting to it, it had got tarnished with the whole sort of the, the, the decaying Tory brush of Profumo and all that. And it hadn't really been seen to move much. And society was charging ahead in leaps and bounds. And then suddenly you had this sea change, really, in 1969, where, where there was this TV documentary, Royal Family, which was a colossal thing. Uh, uh, viewers of The Crown may see that it's sort of dismissed as a sort of non-event, a bit of a disaster that everyone's embarrassed by. It's complete rubbish. It was a huge, huge success, one of the most successful TV documentaries ever. More people in Britain watched Prince Edward buying an ice cream in a shop with the Queen and the family having a barbecue by Loch Muich, the much man landing on the moon that summer. And it was followed in very short order by the televising of the investiture of the Prince of Wales at Carnarvon. And and so suddenly you had this sort of this this change in dynamic. It was helped by the fact that a lot of the elderly courtiers who the Queen had inherited from her father, they were moving on. You had new brooms in the palace, people like Martin Charteris taking charge, very sort of visionary private secretary, uh, Bill Heseltine, a, a very far-thinking Australian press secretary, all these people around her. But de- all the way through, the Queen has authorised all this. She, she's not just sort of sitting there waiting to be told what to do. She's very much an executive monarch. And what I hope I said in this piece is explained how at key moments in her reign, when there has been a crisis, or when there has been a very important need to move, she has moved. Angela, what do you make of Robert's portrait of Elizabeth as a quiet radical, as he puts it? I think it's incredibly wholesome. I think we learn in a short piece beautifully written, is that the two things that really stimulate the Queen and 
help her with all the difficulties that she has to do is one, her faith, and the other is her intuition. And I think that it's an extraordinary combination for any of us to have. And if she can trust in both, because they're not things that you have, it's not money that you can look at and say, well, I don't have to worry because I've got X million in the bank. It's something that um, comes into your soul and into your heart. And if you can manage to deal with uh, this country and all the Commonwealth countries by those two uh, qualities, and I think it's quite extraordinary. And where do you think that intuition comes from? Has she always had it or has it improved over the years? Well, I didn't know it when she was a little girl. <laughs> but I think that it's something that is, is within somebody. I don't think you can make yourself intuitive. It's something that your heart tells your head or your head tells your heart what your next move is. I think she listens to a lot of other people. And with regard to to what you said, Robert, just now um, about change, that Prince Philip said the importance of change within the royal family is to make it that nobody really knows, nobody sees, and to do it quietly and gently. And that builds it up and that does make Mm -hmm. a huge change. And I think she does listen to the people who she admires. And I think she listens to those she doesn't. But then she sort of washes it through in her head and and does what she thinks is right with a bit of information or not. I I think it's a very interesting way of living your life, particularly as she is basically alone. I think as a monarchy, you are, you know, if you're at the top of that monarchy, you are very much alone. Mm. You have to make the decisions. So she has to rely on herself. And I think those two talents or characteristics are incredibly important. I think it has been changed by stealth. And uh, as you say, Angela, she's she's done it so well, really, so sort of incrementally that we tend not to have noticed. But what I hope I've made the point in this piece is that you stand back, and Jubilee is a very good occasion to sort of stand back and look at the broad canvas. And when you do, you just see the scale of things that have, that mm. have changed. I mean, I, I point to that one afternoon in Perth, Australia, in, in 2011, when the entire construct of, of royal succession, royal marriages, was all torn up and, and rearranged to suit 21st century life. And at the time, it, it, it was sort of noted but little more than that i mean i to me it's one of the the most significant reforms of the of the monarchy frankly in in centuries i mean to tear up male primogeniture and lift the ban on uh, marrying catholics and tear up the royal marriages act so that royalty can marry pretty much who they want with one or two exceptions. These are colossal changes. Yes, they were rubber-stamped by the uh, parliaments of her then 16 realms, but uh, don't tell me she wasn't absolutely in on this from the top. You know, this was all being um, steered through by the brilliant uh, Sir Christopher, now Lord Gite, her then private secretary, and, and Sir Christopher would not have done anything like this without close, close consultation with Her Majesty. It was also very wise because she knew that Catherine had come to join the family and that she was a modern young woman Mm. 
Prince William is a modern young man, and if they still, uh, their first child was a girl, there would be a huge uproar Mm. because people are not used to that now. Women have rights, women can do almost any job you can think of. And for her to put the stops on that, I think would have reflected very badly on the monarchy. But I think that was one of the things she took into context of, of what she wanted to do. And of course, she had a boy and then a girl. But I thought that was a very very brave and sensible move actually yeah it had it, i mean it had to be it had to be um, pushed through by by parliaments but the queen knew full well that if uh, it had gone the other way as if, if as you say the cambridges had produced a girl and then a boy all the shouting the uproar the aggro would have rebounded on the monarchy mm. rather than on the politicians whose job it was to do this so Absolutely. i think it was a very efficient collusion between uh, the palace downing street and the foreign office and uh, they sorted it all out she's often one step ahead though yeah. Yeah. she she listens and she learns and she is one step ahead i thought that was with the covid uh, when she came mm. on line uh, i think so many of us were scared we didn't know what to do we couldn't go out can we run to the shops would we catch it and you, we needed something that would help us mm. to make us feel a bit better and that goes for whoever you are it was just a very very scary time it's easy to forget it now but it was very scary and then suddenly she was going to majesty was going to give a broadcast which she doesn't usually do in the middle of the year and there was 24 million people who turned in to listen to her and i know myself i am a royalist but i'm I'm not someone just to believe what someone is saying, but she helped me. I felt much better having heard, we will get over it, we will meet again. Someone who knew, someone who'd been around a long time. I thought that was a brilliant move. It was a brilliant move. And it also showed a real sureness of touch because what people forget, but actually at the time when when the, 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 the outbreak happened, the Queen was coming under quite a lot of pressure to say something. I remember there was a leader in the Times actually attacking her, saying, oh, well, we've heard from all the other monarchs in Europe. The King of Holland's had something to say. And, you know, the King of Spain's spoken out. Where is our Queen? And we had, and, and actually what she knew full well was that when you have a crisis like this, you don't want to go too soon because if you do, then you're going to be expected to, to deliver an ongoing commentary. And if you leave it too late, then you're too late. And she caught it absolutely right. And she wasn't to know, but it's one extraordinary that as she finished speaking, the Prime Minister was on his way into hospital. I mean, Britain was literally rudderless. Uh, well, except it wasn't because we still had the Queen at Windsor Castle, thank heavens. Yes. And of course, this uh, Jubilee uh, weekend, it won't just be Britain celebrating, or the Commonwealth countries as well. And I suppose... In many ways, the Commonwealth can be seen as one of the Queen's greatest um, successes of her of her reign. And you say in your piece, Robert, that she's actually perhaps even more prepared to intervene when it comes to Commonwealth affairs than when it comes to affairs of of uh, British politics. Could you explain a little bit more about that? Yeah, she she's uh, she is the first monarch we've ever had whose stated aim from the start was not to. Uh, grow and consolidate and be top dog and be 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 land of hope and glory, but to, to to reduce, if you like, British Britain's sort of former imperial footprint, and she's done that amazingly successfully, which is why the Commonwealth today has fifty four member states and and others queuing up to join who weren't even part of the British Empire, like Angola, for example. But she has at times, and it has been a a bumpy ride. I mean, you you can't go through this entire decolonisation process and and this repositioning of Britain without difficulties. And I think she's been very good at at judging the balance between what is appropriate for her as as Queen of of not just Britain, but of her realms, but for the broader Commonwealth, because most of the Commonwealth doesn't have her as head of state. 
Um, but there'd be moments, and I mentioned in the piece, for example, in 1979, Mrs. Thatcher was on her way out to her first Commonwealth summit, and, and Kenneth Callender, the president of Zambia, was, was waiting to deliver an absolute broadside, uh, attacking Mrs. Thatcher for her policy on Rhodesia. Uh, and, and it was going to be so um, counterproductive, and the Queen could see that. And she actually lent on Callender. We don't know exactly what was said, but I've seen the classified Foreign Office files, and, and there's a note in there uh, from the private secretary to the Queen supporting this. The Queen in the car from the airport with Coandra said, now look here, I really don't think you should start making accusations like this about Mrs Thatcher. The summit will not go well. And sure enough, Coandra tore up his speech. It was one of the most successful Commonwealth summits of all time. Uh, led to the creation of Zimbabwe. So that's an example. Uh, but in its early days at the modern Commonwealth, because it was no longer the British Commonwealth, lots of people in Britain thought it was still the British Commonwealth. And the Queen could see no, because she, she could see that it had to have its own independence. Britain was just another member. And she was crucial in, in if you like, weaning Britain off that imperial ego, so that when Harold Wilson and his government, for example, tried to put the Commonwealth Secretary-General at the first meeting, put him over in the corner with the stenographers, treat him like some sort of functionary, it was the Queen who said, no, this, this man is, is, is a very senior person, and I am going to make him the number one diplomat in London. So he shot to the top of the protocol charts, and that was entirely down to the Queen. It's little things like that all the way through. You, you watch those cumulatively over 70 years, it, it makes a huge difference. One of the things that she says, and that just ends what you just said here, is that she says small steps can make a world of difference, mm. and that is very much what that's, that's her, I think that's been her I thought creed. she's also not a micromanager. She doesn't do that with her children, and she doesn't do it with things. But she has this wonderful instinct of knowing when she should say something and put her foot down, and we've noticed this over even with her children and grandchild over the last months or years, that when she's had enough, she really does come down. It's succinct. She doesn't go on about it. Um, she just answers it very formally. And that's the end of that issue. Well, Angela and Robert, thank you very much for joining. Next, what's going on with Boris? It seems as though he's still hanging on after the publication of the Sue Gray report. But how stable is his position? And is he about to face a vote of no confidence? I'm joined by our political editor, James Forsyth, to discuss. James, your politics column this week says that Boris could be toppled by accident. What exactly do you mean by that? Well, at the moment, there are a steady stream of letters going in. And I think we are very close to the 54 letters that would need to be to trigger a no confidence vote. But these letters aren't being, there isn't some kind of central mastermind saying, you know, today you go public, this morning you go public with your letter, this afternoon you do it. It is more an organic reaction. It is just Tory MPs, who have, some of whom have spent a long time discussing with other people who want Boris Johnson to go, what the best way to do it is. They couldn't come to any agreement. And so people are now just doing their own thing. And so you could have a situation where you end up with a, vote of no confidence, not because anyone has planned it out because they know they've got 180 votes to defeat Boris Johnson in that contest, but just because 54 Tory MPs have had enough and written their letters to the chairman of the 1922 committee. I think one of the interesting dynamics at the moment is some of those who've wanted Boris Johnson gone for quite a long time, you know, are saying to people, well, hang on a second, why don't we wait until after these two by-elections on June the 23rd. You know, if the Tories were to, as most people in the Tory party expect, to lose Wakefield to Labour and then a very safe rural seat in Tiverton and Honiton to the Liberal Democrats, you know, that would cause concern among you know, both type of Tory MP and that would make it more likely that the rebels could win a no-confidence vote. 
Is it more dangerous for Boris in a way if it is a more organic process and there's no obvious ringleader? Yeah, because if this is a centrally directed plot, you can hope to kind of work out who is next. You can try and placate the rebels. You can find, you know, there is someone to parlay with, someone to, and and you can try and thwart the plot. And they did something that they did very effectively, actually, in January, if you think back to the last time we were having this speculation. You know, Boris Johnson had that shadow whipping operation. It spread out. You know, it found out which MPs were wavering or on the fence and got them in front of Boris Johnson and got him to address their concerns. Because this is just MPs coming to their own decisions, that is much harder to do. Boris is obviously clearly desperate to get away from Partygate, and I, I presumably thought that once the Seagrey report arrived, it would draw a line under it, but it doesn't seem to have done. Do you think he can ever escape Partygate? So I think that the Tory MPs could have knew that because the House Commons Privileges Committee was going to investigate, the Grey report would not be the end of the matter. But I think they hoped for a respite. And what we've seen is that, you know, the story has kept on coming with fresh accusations. You've had Lord Guite, independent advisor on ministerial interests and standards, you know, making clear his displeasure. And so all of these things have just kept this story in the news when most Tory MPs just want it to go away. And they are fed up to the back teeth of the story. And I think some of them are beginning to think, well, look, what, what, what ends this? What makes this go away? And number 10 don't have an answer to that. I think one of the mistakes they've made is last weekend, you know, they had just spent £21 billion on basically trying to provide people with support for their energy bills. But rather than talking about that, they were talking about, you know, the return of imperial measures and all this kind of stuff, which which might be fine as a second-order story, but it made Tory MPs think, you know, this isn't big enough, you know, this makes us look directionless. And I think I think number 10 would have been on better ground if they'd been actually talking about, look, this is what we're doing to provide support to people on low incomes, to pensioners, you know, £400 off for every household. That would have been a better solution to their problems than, than talking about stuff that's seems relatively trivial and do you think a no confidence vote could provide that in a way it could be this is the reset that boris might need if he is to win it no because i think while the tory rules provide a great deal of protection for the incumbent you know you need to get 15 percent of mps to write a letter which as both theresa may and boris johnson have demonstrated is this is not an easy thing to do an easy thing to achieve but because the threshold is so high once that has been reached it's almost certain that the incumbent is not going to win by such a decisive margin but it puts the the issue to bed i mean think about Theresa may she got almost two-thirds of the vote yet you know in six or seven months later she was still gone and i think the problem is those people who know the parliamentary party best think that a no confidence vote would be a close run thing that boris johnson would probably win it but maybe by a smaller margin than Theresa may did in, in 2018 and so that, that means it wouldn't be the end of the battle. We'd be, we would be in constant speculation about whether the rules will be changed to allow another vote within a year. And it's also, you know, the very act of the vote being held is corrosive of a, of a Prime Minister's authority. We obviously have the Jubilee this weekend and the on the 23rd of June, it's when we expect to have the by-elections. What kind of time frame do you think we're looking at at the moment? So I, I think that if everyone who is planning to put a letter in, put a letter in, you know, when Parliament returned, we could have a vote before the 23rd of June. I think mean, the, the, the question is whether some of those more uh, Machiavellian people persuade, say, people, look, look, I know you've put your letter in, but take it out for two weeks because you're much better off putting it in after the by-election or not. I think mean, that is the question. But at the moment, right, right now, it looks likely that we will probably have a no-confidence ballot before the by-elections take place. And if he does lose, then what? Then there will be a leadership contest.
And I mean, what, what, what's going to happen in that? <laughs> I think it would be, you know, Tory leadership contests are always more like the Grand National than the Derby. You know, they are unpredictable. The favourite rarely wins. Indeed, one of the ways in which Boris Johnson is exceptional is he was a favourite who won a Tory leadership contest. I think this would be the most open Tory leadership contest in living memory. I think there would be a lot of candidates. I think they'll probably have to impose some kind of uh, minimum threshold of support before you can stand rather than just getting a proposer and a seconder. Because otherwise, you know, the parliamentary rounds of a contest alone could go on for weeks. But I find it very hard. People, There'll be lots of talk about whether you could short circuit the process, you know, whether you could skip going to the members. I think this contest is so open and I don't think anyone is going to get overwhelming support but I think it is almost inevitable that this this, this contest does end up going out to, with the final two going out to a Tory membership which means it will take some time if it were to happen. And James just looking at Labour do you think Labour is sincere in its desire to see Boris go or do they quite like the damage that Boris is currently doing to the Conservative Party? I think the, the best outcome from the point of view of a Labour Party would be that the Tory party you know has successive no confidence ballots in Boris Johnson in which you know they get closer to pushing him out, but they never actually do because divided parties don't win elections. I also think that Labour will be looking at this. You know, and one thing that I think is likely is whatever the result of this no-confidence vote, there will be bitterness left in the Tory party. If Boris Johnson is forced out by a no-confidence vote, there'll be people who say, oh, well, you know, we, why, did we get rid of, you know, why did we get rid of a man who won us an 80-seat majority? There'll be discontent. I mean, the parliamentary party is going to be very hard to manage from now on, regardless of what happens. I think this is a problem because you can't get around the fact that the Tory party is fundamentally split on the leadership question, and that is its problem. I think for Labour, there's obviously, you know, we've had Durham Police confirm that they have sent Keir Starmer and Angela Rayner now questionnaire. I think, you know, Labour want that bit of a story to be behind it. It will make it easier for it to, to attack the Tories on, on all of this stuff if, it, if this cloud over its own leader is, is removed. But I think you know, divided parties rarely win elections. And I think for Labour, the ideal scenario is that the Tories carry on looking divided. And because it's very hard for, for government, you know, a divided party finds it very... Look at, look at what happened to the Tories in between 92 and 97, you know, after Black Wednesday. They were kind of permanently split. And it just... And, and the public saw that, didn't like it, and handed Labour a thumping majority. Now, I don't mean, mean Labour is going to win the next election by a 97-style majority, but I think one of the things that you will see is if the Tories cannot heal these divisions, it will make it far easier for Labour to deny the Tories a majority in the next election. And James, if you were a number 10 advisor, what advice would you be giving to Boris right now? I think it is difficult to, for their situation right now because, you know, some people say, oh, well, why don't you, you know, what do prime ministers often do? They talk about a reshuffle when they're in trouble, you know, it, it reassures people. But I think that carries with its own dangers because when you're this close to the 54 letters, Sacking a bunch of people causes its own problems. If you carry out a very minimal reshuffle, you make some more ambitious people think, ah, oh, well, the Prime Minister's too weak to do a proper reshuffle. So if I want to carry on up the greasy pole, there needs to be a new Prime Minister. I think one of the problems for him is there aren't obvious policies now that he can pursue that will please everyone in the Tory party. You know, take, for example, the issue of the Northern Ireland Protocol. You know, there are undoubtedly some people in the party who want him to get on with that, publish the legislation, tell the EU, look, 
here's how we're going to rewrite it unilaterally unless you negotiate with us. But there are also other Tory MPs who are very worried about, you know, ending up in a possible trade war with the EU. And so it is hard to see what policies he can pursue right now that bring together kind of all Tory MPs when he needs to try and kind of bring everyone together and can't really afford to lose kind of any more off either end. That is one of the big things which is a, a challenge for him right now. So would you be advising him against a reshuffle? Uh, I think a reshuffle, I think I think in yes minister terms, it would be extremely brave for the Prime Minister to start sacking people at this point. Thank you, James. And finally, is Chinese cinema in decline? In her column this week, Cindy Yu writes on this subject, and she joins me now along with Andrew Haskins, the founder of easternkicks.com, a review website which specialises in Asian film. Cindy, this week you write about a film you went to see in Soho recently called Lan Yu. What was the film about and what in it prompted you to write this week's column on it? So Lan Yu is a 2001 film, so it's an old film being remastered, which is why it was being shown again. It's a film about a gay love story between this poor university student in Beijing and an older businessman. And it's, it's tragic but wholesome and what was incredible about the story is that it normalises this kind of homosexual relationship in a society which is actually quite homophobic. So that's what first stuck out to me but then it was um, the scene in there about of Tiananmen Square and in the story the violent end to the protests was quite a pivotal moment for the two characters and their love story because it kind of brings them together at a really important moment. So it was important to the story, but also obviously politically for a Chinese film to be showing that is quite dangerous. There was just basically this reenactment of injured young people being rushed out of the square on carts, bleeding, shooting in the background. It was, you know, very, very graphic and traumatic scene. And of course, the film is banned in China, not least because of that, but also because of the homosexuality. The censors would not have liked that. Um, so I, I met the producer last year through a friend. He invited me and it was just it was an amazing film for both of those reasons. And in your column, you talk about what's happened to China in the past 30 years, some of it good, some of it bad. And you, you contrast that with what's happened to Chinese cinema. What's your theory? Yeah, so... It's it's another anniversary of Tiananmen Square this Saturday, which is why you know, which is what got me thinking about this. And just ref- being reflective on the last three decades, it doesn't really feel like China has you know got that much better in the terms of the intellectual freedom that people have. Obviously, materially, people are so much better off, and I'm a direct beneficiary of that. But intellectually. If, as you say, if you look at Chinese cinema, in the 80s and the 90s, there was this absolute golden age where you had these really thoughtful directors who'd lived through the Cultural Revolution, who was for the first time able to kind of reflect that kind of stuff in their work. And a lot of it was banned. A lot of it was very subversive, socially and politically, for example, with the homosexual um, undertones and that kind of stuff. But it was relatively, you know, allowed. And there was stuff that was not banned. And, you know, even the banned stuff you could get on DVD and that kind of thing. But now if you look at the films that are being created in Chinese cinema, it's stuff like Wolf Warrior and Wolf Warrior 2. And that's the kind of stuff that actually does quite well at the box office, which is such a shame because we're not seeing the kind of amazing cinema that we used to see. And I think it's both a censorship problem in that that's got tighter. It's also in that people are not demanding that kind of intellectual food, as it was. It's all junk food these days. Andrew, Cindy talks in her piece about the rise and fall of Chinese cinema over the past few decades. Do you see it that way? I, I mean, I, I agree. I think one thing that's happened in the last few years, and, and we this is, is almost a cyclical thing with Chinese cinema over you know, the last hundred years, is that it it's very much withdrawn into itself. 
So we all those fantastic films that we saw in the 80s and 90s, those filmmakers were being exposed to international audiences and they were making films that actually often were, in many respects, aimed towards international audiences and, and film festivals throughout the world. And now we're just seeing this this kind of uh, China as, as, as kind of withdrawing into itself um, for all sorts of reasons. But, you know, culturally, it, 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 the creative is, is making it incredibly difficult for filmmakers now to to make the sort of films that they would want to. And the, the, the system now is so subjective that filmmakers can even get their films signed off to travel to film festivals and then when they want to get a local release still might have to change some aspects in order to actually get that local release. And obviously China has a large diaspora. Are there Chinese producers and directors perhaps not based in China but in America or other Asian countries who are making slightly more interesting films about China? Uh, I mean, I think yeah, there's always there's there are always films from um, filmmakers who are looking for you know are, are are able to create those films about diaspora. I think it's, uh, I mean that's it, it. Those can be very interesting. I think you know it's you could say the same for for any filmmakers anywhere who who are making films to where they might have moved to um, wherever they're from. I think. For me, it's just kind of a, it's it's more of a shame that 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 you can't that these these films aren't being released. One of the biggest changes that happened in the last few years was the big change that that all films that went to film festivals had to have the have the the, the dragon seal in order to be released anywhere you know in, in film festivals. Before then, films could get out the the sort of lower scale kind of indie films could be released in 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 around the world, but. Yeah, now that can't happen, and that changes that kind of system. Just changes the sort of films that can be made. Just the amount of production you have to have behind you in order to be able to prepare the film at different stages uh, to get sign-off. Cindy, you say in your piece that you worry that China's cinema goers are too superficial, too hubristic, and that they don't really want to see hard questions raised in the cinema. Is that something that's changed? Is that do people used to want to see kind of more about Chinese recent history? So I think to caveat would be to say that a lot of these um, 80s and 90s films, you know, they were necessarily they they didn't necessarily have mainstream appeal anyway, but they were able to be done, and the directors were popular. You know, they were popular even if their products were you know, a bit ooh, a bit touchy. And the importance back then is that box office didn't matter as much. But now with the commercialization of the industry, box office is essentially the the biggest thing that matters if it does well. Um, and so there's no direct comparison because it's hard to say the Chinese market now compared to Chinese market then. But I do think that as people have become more confident in China about the state of geopolitics, about the state of their country, they want to see this kind of negative stuff less. And it's not even necessarily negative, it's just a bit more critical, you know? And so I had a family member who said to me about Yellow Earth, which is about... The, the, the shocking backwardness and poverty of um, 1930s northwestern China. This family member said, it, said to me that that's just poverty porn for Westerners. Sure, some Westerners might might watch it for that motivation, but at the same time, it's you know it's important to understand your country's history through an artistic lens. And so I think I'm seeing that streak where people want to see nationalistic films where China's doing well more so than these other questions. Andrew, is, is there a risk that China starts to lose out to a lot of other Asian countries that are doing quite radical, interesting things in the world of cinema? 
I, I think the big thing is now that in general it's not a concern you know it's it's not so much about impressing international audiences with these films that's that is not a concern at all for for, for what's happening in china and I kind of that's part of what i mean when it's kind of withdrawing into itself the, i think that the, the 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 warning sign was when china submitted wolf warrior 2 as its entry to the foreign language film at the oscars which was was kind of a bit of a two fingers up to the appreciation of you know, basically the idea of being well this was one of the biggest successes on the globe so why wouldn't it be there but there's there is just no interest and there's very very few films that are coming through now that are interesting you know you've got directors like uh wei sujian who uh recently did ripples of life and that that traveled to festivals and before then striding into the wind which is a fantastic very indie flavored kind of film both are about filmmaking but the, the, that's that's become very very rare that they're all that, that any of these filmmakers are even really looking outside to get these films into international audiences and cindy just to finish on as someone who grew up in china as we now based in the uk what films have you found particularly kind of helpful for understanding china's history and, and that you'd recommend to listeners so there's a trio of historical films which came out at very similar times from three of these um, golden era uh, directors. There is To Live, there is Farewell My Concubine, and then there is The Blue Kite. And all three of them deal with 20th century Chinese history. So I would recommend watching one of those. My personal favourite of those is Farewell My Concubine. And it just, it's just raises the question of this amazing change that China has been through, that one character who starts in feudal China, pre-communist takeover, possibly gambling, going to brothels, can in the same lifetime being a commune and be a family man and then go through the Cultural Revolution. It's, I mean, you get whiplash just to understand. And I think that's a, that says something about the Chinese psyche because any peoples who live through that kind of fast change of pace are going to have certain traumas and certain ways of looking at things. And I think that explains a lot about why a lot of Chinese take lying down a lot of the politics of the country right now. Andrew and Cindy, thank you very much for joining. And that's everything for the edition. As ever, if you pick up this week's magazine, which is our special Jubilee edition, you'll be able to read everything we've talked about. We've also got a Jubilee flash sale, which ends on Monday. You can get 10 issues for £1, plus a commemorative tea towel free. I'm Laura Prendergast, and I do hope you'll join us again next week. 